seriously look at that. And Elise looked like she just came from a Fleetwood Mac concert. For you that don't know Fleetwood Mac, check that out, Google that. But they are both so cool. And uh, I remember back when we were kids, if you wore stuff that had tears in it, you would get in trouble. You need some new Kmart jeans, you know. And Kmart was still around. <laughs> Old school. I'm learning. Well, again, welcome everybody online, visitors that are here. I hope you feel welcomed, and I hope that people have made you feel welcome and loved. Uh, this is a safe place to be on a Sunday morning, worshiping God and, and praising God. And what a great opportunity we've already had. I apologize that you don't get to hear Aaron or Cole. Uh, I sat in the front on purpose because it's close, and secondly, because I didn't see how many people got up and left when they heard I was speaking. <laughs> Praise God. You guys stuck around. I appreciate that. And thank you for that. So here's the deal. Saturday night, I'm at home. I'm relaxed. I'm in my recliner. My wife just cooked a great, and I'm telling you, a great meal. She is a great cook. And uh, I'm so appreciative of that. I'm kicking back. The IU-Purdue basketball game is about to tip off. It's 7.30. I am enjoying it, and I'm bipartisan. That's the right thing to say. I'm, I went to Anderson University, so I don't care who wins. I may favor one or another, but I'm not going to talk about that today. <laughs> but it was a great game. About 8.15, 8.30, phone rings, and if it weren't for caller ID, I wouldn't have picked it up. It said, Pastor Aaron. I'm thinking, why is he calling me? Oh, yeah, he's from Michigan. He doesn't care about IU-Purdue game. <laughs> who calls during an IU-Purdue game? Seriously? Not anybody from Indiana, I guarantee you, or Purdue. Yeah, Pastor Aaron uh, telling me he's not well and um, asking me. So with very little preparation, but a great God, I come to you this morning to share my encounter, some of my encounter with Christ to kick off this new series. So how I'd like to begin that is just talk a little bit about me and my career and uh, where it kind of led to this point is I worked almost over 40 years in, uh, started in the juvenile probation department right out of Anderson University. I worked there almost 10 years. I got called to go to General Motors. Uh, Becky announced about the same time our third child was on the way, so the timing was great because probation, Josh back in that day, didn't play, pay anything close to what they pay today, and it's still not great, but it's good. Um, so I took the offer, went to General Motors, ended up being a wonderful blessing after a couple years working the toughest job I ever had in supervision on the floor in the plant, I had no clue how to be a supervisor in a, a union shop. So they taught me many lessons, valuable lessons uh, in how to do that and in life. So I stayed there and I got the job as an EAP, employee assistance person. Wonderful program. Basically, uh, it's to help employees, family members, dependents, uh, both union salaried, and there were 12,000 employees, folks, back in that day at the General Motors plant. 7,600 UAW, strong, 4,600 engineers and salaried folks. So I had many opportunities to help folks and, and, and their dependents. And, um, you know, with family, family, marital, alcohol, drug programs, I got to run alcohol and drug support groups while I was there. It was the greatest job I ever had. And after 26 years, I got let go. Things are shrinking down and I was one of those people that got caught in that at the ripe old age of 58. Now that seems young. So that was 12 years ago. 
so you can do the math or not. And so I, I get a call um, from probation that they would like me to come back and work as an alcohol and drug probation officer. I thought, wow. I really had thought about how cool that would be to be able to finish my career where I started it. So that's what I did. I took that job and for those seven years got to work with some wonderful people, uh, working for the county. Uh, it was a great, great way to finish my career. And the reason I tell you all that, just to give you a little background, of, and, and I work in the recovery ministry here and help take care of the recovery ministry here. We meet every Monday and Wednesday, 6.30 to 7.30. We average about 60 to 70 people a week coming in here, you know, that want to hear the word of God, that, that get, we talk about Jesus, who get to hang out with other recovering, really cool people that are in recovery, get reinforcement in their encouragement and their transformation, becoming clean and sober and just holding each other accountable. Um, we always say there is no account or no recovery without accountability. And it's kind of like being a Christian. There's no Christianity without accountability, you know, to help one another, encourage one another, support one another in our faith, in our growth, in, in our beliefs, morals, and values. So that's why we come together and worship and fellowship. So having said all that, I thought about um, all the stories that I have heard. Oh my goodness. Becky has said many times, as have others, you should write a book. Of course, I'd leave out the names to protect the innocent or the guilty uh, in terms of clients that I've worked with over the years, but some amazing, incredible stories, some sad stories, just a, a mixture of all kinds of stories. So I thought I would share a story with you today about a little boy. Uh, and this little boy grew up in Kokomo and uh, grew up without a dad. Uh, as, as a little boy, never knew his father. Uh, and Josh, he talked about how important a dad is, so the risk really goes up for a young person who doesn't grow up with a father figure, even a, a good father figure, a great father figure in their home. So, so appreciate what you guys are doing with dad camp, how important it is. So this little guy kind of got off to a rocky start. You see, his mom and dad were not married. So he was married, the dad was married to another wife and had an affair with this little boy's mother and so you know the title that comes with that so this little guy at a very young age learned the word illegitimate child stigma a label we all know about labels and stigmas that can be attached well to make matters even worse his mother was a, a Anybody know what Valium is? Anybody remember Valium? I see a few heads, old timers shaking their heads. For the younger people, that's a benzodiazepine. It's a uh, chill pill. Uh, Valium was one of the early drugs that was developed to help people with anxiety or anxiety disorders or people that with nervous disorders, they used to be called. So the new ones are Klonopin, uh, Xanax, you know, again, uh, a very addictive drug, but very helpful for people uh, with anxiety, very quick acting. So his, his mother would take the chill pill. If anybody remembers, uh, what's the name of that group? Rolling Stones. Thanks, Becky. Yeah. Mother's Little Helper, they called it. And I believe that was in one of their songs, the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger for you guys. I don't know. Google that, <laughs> young people. Yeah, you can figure that out. So anyway, yeah, this uh, little guy kind of had some uh, adversity, you would say. Plus, he was a gateway kid. Everybody know gateway? It's called Garden Place, I think, now. So I, 
I'm not sure, but I don't think there are gardens there. Back in the day, it was called gateway gardens, and there was a gateway in and out, you know, the east or the north, south. Anyway, it was a, a pretty rough place to grow up. 176 families in a square block. Imagine that. One and two, three bedrooms. Some of those uh, housed eight, nine, 10, 12 kids. And um, it's pretty rough. Uh, it's a low-income housing development, often referred to as a project. So here you got a project kid, no dad, a mother addicted to medications, growing up in Gateway Gardens, wearing Kmart shoes and jeans probably at best. So a lot of negativity there, a lot of uh, just bad things. So as I've found in, in working with people with alcohol and drug problems, a lot of times they turn to substances or things or people or places to try to ease the pain. To try to ease the pain. To try to feel better about the world that they are in or the environment they're living in. This little guy was no different. He's uh, picking up cigarettes, smoking cigarettes. One of the most addictive drugs on the planet. Kills more than all the other drugs combined. Uh, I'm not, not down anybody that's still smoking cigarettes, but it's the number one killer, tobacco. Second would be alcohol, third would be opioids, painkillers. So he starts with the number one drug, nicotine. 14 years old, turns to alcohol, starts drinking on a regular basis, wanting to feel accepted and fit in. By the age of 17, smoking other things, stealing mother's medications. By the age of 19, this little guy, now a young adult, youth actually, a young man, uh, had made the decision that it was too much. The alcohol, the drugs, abusing, using people, places, and things to try to ease the pain didn't work anymore. Could have been a very, very sad ending at that point, but this young man met God through a person. Now, really want you to pay attention to that because that's how most of us meet Christ or we come to know God is through someone like us sharing with them. Well, this little guy met this person, a 19-year-old girl, while at Anderson College. And she shared Jesus. She took him to church. If you haven't figured that out by now, uh, what I'm talking about, I'm talking about me. This is my story. This is my wife. At age 19, she rescued me, um, literally from the gutters, picked me up, brushed me off, and said, uh, I want to get to know you. And she began to love me unconditionally, took me to church, walked with me to counseling, took me to my counseling sessions, held my hand, and changed my life. It was Becky, but it was God working through you. Uh, my first encounter with Christ. And uh, I got saved at age 19. Now, was I perfect from that point on? Let me ask you, were you perfect from that point on? <laughs> Same answer. None of I still had a lot of work to do. Uh, and, and I brought this, I uh, brought some props today. I know, you know, normally I would have loved to have had them up on the screen, but I got called at 8.30 last night, so... <laughs> I had an opportunity while working at GM to make these masks. And 
this mask I made first was kind of to tell my story and uh, I was working as an EAP, like I said, and got to go to a conference. And this mask uh, was after much prayer, consternation about what am I going to do because I'm in this class and they're going to put this plaster of Paris on our face and then we got to decorate them. So very interesting thing to do. So I've done this over and over, like at treatment centers, youth groups, uh, Trinity House, the jails, uh, Gilead House, uh, Wabash Recovery. I mean, I... I do these mask-making things everywhere to give people a chance to tell their story and how to tell your story. So I use this, and it started out, I prayed about it, and, and God said to me, literally in my spirit, said, for change to happen, for real transformation, you gotta start on the inside. So I took that literally. So that's what I did. I started on the inside of the mask, and all of us, if you think about it, have worn masks at some point. Whether you agree with that or not, we all wear masks. We are a certain way with certain people. We might be different with certain people. We might be different at work. You know, we want to be cons consistent with who we are, but there are times where we put on the mask. And me, as a young kid, I wore a lot of different masks. I wanted to be the all to all. I wanted to be okay with that person, that person. I wanted to hang out with the rich kids but then I had to come back to Gateway and hang out with the project kids. And finding my place was a very difficult thing at age 18, 19. And I had a real difficult time with that, a very difficult time. I didn't even know it at the time. I was having panic attacks and just thought it was from smoking, drinking too much or the wrong thing. Or, uh, so it was a very good place for me to pick up a mask and hide behind. So what I put on the inside was words that described what was going on in my life, and I think probably at least some of you, maybe all of you, could relate at some point with, with these words. I had fear, chaos, anger, and shame. And I put them in a, in a certain color to kind of describe that emotion, you know, and hiding the feelings on the inside was a big part of who I was. You could not, you know, in Gateway Gardens, big boys don't cry. And the rules were don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel. Anybody ever had those rules? Don't have to raise your hands. Just ask them. Don't talk about your family. Don't talk about your problems. Don't talk about what's going on at home. Don't talk about this. Keep it inside. Put on the mask. Cover it up. The fear of coming home and not knowing what to expect. You know, um, doors would be locked. Lights are off. You know, second, third, fourth grade. Just got to hang out, hang out in the parking lot with the guys, do whatever they're doing. You know, until the lights came back on, that meant it was okay to come home. Usually meant there was a guest at the house that I wasn't welcome. So having to deal with that kind of fear, the chaos, you know, since uh, I've become an adult, I have found out that I had four other sisters that I never met that were given up at birth for adoption by my mother. So three of those sisters are back in my life, which is a blessing. I thank God and praise God that they were able to find us through DNA. Actually, what's the name of that uh, group that does the Ancestry.com. One of my sister's family through Ancestry.com. So there you go. And uh, what a blessing to reunite with siblings I didn't even know I had. Uh, so yeah, my mother had uh, six children by five different men. And I'm not shaming her. That's, you know, that was 
all she knew back in the day, she grew up in an alcoholic home. There was a lot of shame and chaos in her. And here's what I want to tell you as a parent. So thanks again for dad care because as a parent, you can't give away what you don't have. You hear that? If you don't have it, how are you going to give it away to your children? How do you get it? Part of this being here today, going to dad camp, watching, having uh, accountability in your life with friends. I look to others. A couple of them are in this room. You know, I think about Steve Byes, John Hart, and, and your wives. You know, Chuck Roberts, and some of you guys that I watched when I was a young man with babies at home. I watched you. You modeled for me. They modeled for us, didn't they, Jim? We grew up in this church, and we watched and you modeled for us. So, you older folks, um, define older, right? You more mature folks with wisdom, modeling for those younger people is a big part. That's our dad camp here. But thanks be to God for the groups and the people that are out there doing that kind of thing. So the shame was a big part too and the anger. Um, we'll spend a lot of time talking about those. But what it did uh, for me was keeping it locked in. Nobody could see what I'm going through. You know, I pretended the mask, the gold and the white was to pretend, the player, the actor, that everything's cool. I mean, unless somebody had been where I'd been and, and knew what I was going through, nobody knew. You know, I was an athlete by day, smoking and drinking by night. What a life, leading a double life. You know, it, it takes a lot of energy is what I want to say to keep this mask on. It takes a lot of energy to pretend and not even know who you are and trying to figure out who you are and where you are. Yeah, and you know what, though? The good side of that is there's healing in the Lord. You know, there's, there's God healed me from the shame of growing up in Gateway, from the shame of being born as an illegitimate child. That's not about me. That doesn't define who I am. I had a choice to continue to be the victim you know, or to live life victoriously. And I see that so much in our world today, people that have uh, adversity in their life and rather than turn to Jesus, turn to other things to try to fill that void or that emptiness inside that we have. And most of us have been through some kind of trauma and we need Jesus to heal that trauma. We need other people in our lives to support and to help us through that, to walk with us, not tell us, Come this way. No, walk with that person. Relationship. Build that relationship. If you really want to minister the way Jesus did, he walked with them. He pointed them in the right direction and walked with them. And I'm telling you, that's what Jesus did for me because I was, uh, I guess I should go, ahead. Nah, I'll bring this one. This is my second mask. This is after recovery and after Christ. So I'll talk about that, but I want to uh, read a word to you right now that I'm going to use as the focus for the rest of what I'm going to talk about today. It comes from the book of John in chapter 9. I would encourage you, uh, I don't have it up on the screen, so if you didn't bring your Bible with you today, you can't read along, you've got to listen carefully, because this is really a word that God gave to me. I remember where I was, it's one of those revolutionary kind of thing where he just revealed himself in such a real way to me uh, again. I didn't hear the audible voice, but I heard in my spirit when I was crying out to God, and I wonder if there's anybody here today, crying out to God, why me? And I must have said it 100,000 times. 
to God, why me? Why did you choose me to grow up in this situation, this adversity, to deal with this kind of stuff? And, and just was so heavy as a kid on my heart, my mind, my spirit. And I just kept crying out, why me? And I'm in the breezeway where we used to live on West Jefferson Street. Actually, it was next door to the animal hospital on West Jefferson there where Katie Rigsby works now. I don't know if she's here. I didn't see her. Anyway, uh, I'm in that breezeway, and I'm, I did my devotionals out in the breezeway. It was a nice area to be alone away from the kids and Becky in early in the morning. And I was crying it out, and he told me to read John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. So I'm going to do that right now. He says, uh, as he went along, he saw a man that was born blind from birth. And his disciples who were walking with him asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned? Was it his fault or his parents? Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Woo, somebody say amen. That's an amen right there. That's it. I, I bawled like a baby when he gave me that. Man, that opened my eyes. It opened my heart. And uh, I just thank and praise Jesus because what I learned and still learning about that is adversity is going to happen, people. Trauma is going to happen. We are on an imperfect planet with imperfect people, imperfect world. Trauma, adversity, tough times are going to happen. There's not one person in this room today or outside of this room that has or will in the future or are now in the midst of some kind of adversity or some kind of rough, tough time. I know that like I know anything else on the planet. And what God says is, you didn't cause it, they didn't cause it, but not why me, how can I use this so that you can glorify me. So how would this be used? How can this be used to turn it around and glorify God? Amen. Amen. I look at my life and all the things that God has allowed, didn't cause, allowed to happen to make me into who I am today, to do what I do. 40 plus 40 years of working with addicts and alcoholics, you know, and showing unconditional love, holding them accountable, asking them the hard questions. Not an easy thing to do, you know. Um, I, got, I got a real quick story. So I was just talking about some of our people from recovery that haven't shown up. With a couple, I meet with an accountability group on Tuesdays at Windmill Grill, noon. Great, great group of guys. And I was just saying, I miss these guys. Where are they? they have, you know, we have a saying, meeting makers make it in recovery. And they hadn't been coming. So out of concern, I'm lifting them up and we're talking about and I'm not kidding you, the next day, last Wednesday, right over here, two or three people showed up that had not been showing up and they had gone back out, but they were coming back. One of those people, that same day I was in CVS, um, my wife, by the way, Cole, I don't know if you gave it to her or somebody else or grandkids, but she had the same flu thing that you did and I was in ER with her for four hours. I think that was Wednesday morning, it was, but she's well. And it was awful, but it was a, about a 48-hour stomach virus that was not fun. 
And uh, thank God she didn't pass it on to me. So I'm in CVS and I see another guy that we had just talked about and had not seen him in about six months. And he was coming regular and really doing well, sharing and he had six, seven, eight months of sobriety, was very active participant, all of a sudden he disappears. So here he is in CVS and I see him and I just walk up to him and I'm like, Jim, I miss you, man. We miss you, the group miss you. Uh, we've been talking and asking about you. He goes, I'm not coming back. I was a little bit shocked and surprised by that answer. I didn't expect him to be so bold and brunt to just come around. I'm not coming back. I said, man, I hope you make a decision to come back because we, we really need you, you know, and you've got a great story. He goes, I'm an alcoholic. Dude, that's why we're here. <laughs> I mean, that's why we come together. We accept and admit and want to lift each other. And he goes, I'm not coming back. So I'm in a public place. I'm not going to get into any serious, heavy discussion because we're right up by the counter and people are coming up. So I just said, dude, I'm praying for you. And I am. Every day I pray for him. And I, I hope maybe now if you think about Jim that you, he'll find his way back. So there's tough, it's tough. It's a tough business to work in. You know, there's a lot of successes, but I've seen more people die from uh, substance abuse than probably most people because of my work and haven't worked as long as I have in that business, but I focus on the ones that are getting well and want to be well. And um, I got another uh, mask that I want to show you. So this is about being well. This is my mask that, you know, when Jesus came into my life and he began to do a work in me, he did for me what I couldn't do for myself until I could begin to help myself. This mask, I took all the colors from the inside of the other mask and put them on the outside so I don't have to wear it on the inside anymore. I could share my burdens. I could share my adversity. I can find a safe place and trust people to do that. I can talk about it today. I can feel today in my recovery. Will, can you tell what that is? Somebody help, Will. That's a butterfly. Come on, man. Oh, I didn't hear you. Say it loud and proud. It's a butterfly. And what does a butterfly represent? To me, it represents freedom. Freedom from hiding behind the mask. Freedom to fly with Christ, to walk with Christ, to talk about Jesus and what he did for me, how he healed me from all of that, from the shame, from the anger, from the fear. Yeah, I still feel those things, but I'm okay because I trust God with it today and not myself. God can heal us from anything and everything, and he wants to do that. He wants to do that. He wants us to take off the mask. He accepts us right where we're at. No matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, we can trust him to bring peace, to bring comfort, to bring hope. My encounters with Christ include a, a walk to Emmaus, which was another huge step in my spiritual growth and my spiritual fitness. It's similar to uh, the Great Banquet. If you guys, anybody familiar with Kokomo Great Banquet, Emmaus Walks, Curcio, uh, there's some other names out. I don't see anybody raising their hand, but let me tell you what. There you go. I got a few people in the house. That, a wonderful three-day experience, and, and Jesus made himself so real to me. <laughs> I shared that here before, and I'll just tell you, he made himself so real to me, there was never a doubt 
ever again in my life that he is real and he wants to be made real in our lives. He wants to be present. It's not just we meet with him in the morning and we meet with him at night before we go to bed or we have a prayer time, a special set time. Yes, we need all that, but God wants to be present in our lives all the time. Can you imagine how much freedom there is in that walking around and Jesus is with you everywhere you go? No matter what you're doing, no matter who you're with, no matter what the situation is, God is present. He is real. He is in our presence. And we welcome him here. Welcome you here. Welcome you wherever he wants to meet with us. Uh, so, 2 Corinthians. Another word I want to read that really, really describes for me uh, what God did for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You may be familiar with this verse. Verses, beginning with verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, I love that. Therefore, now, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled himself through Christ to us and gave us, there's a responsibility here, gave us the responsibility for reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself, to Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are in the ministry of reconciliation. Did you know that? We are in the ministry of reconciliation. As far as we can do our part, that's what we're responsible for. Not the response, but the ministry of reconciliation to do our part. That's our responsibility. You can't keep what you got if you don't give it away. Amen. Now, once you get it, that's why when Aaron called, how am I going to say no? <laughs> Seriously? I mean, not because of Aaron, but because of what Christ has done for me. Scripture in Peter says, be prepared at all times to give the reason for the hope that you have today. Did you know? That's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. It's in the word. It's a command. It's what we're to do. So you can't keep it if you don't give it away. If you don't got it, you need to get it. And today could be the day. You get it. Right on? Is that still said? That's the 70s, right? Right on. All right. So I think, I don't know what time it is. Oh, gosh, it's after 11. I'm sorry. I think I was supposed to. All right. I'm going to close with this. Uh, Cole, are you coming back up? All right, I'm going to close. And now from Fleetwood Mac Live. <laughs> you look like Fleetwood Mac. I don't know about the raggedy jacket, but look at the lease. Beautiful. There you go. Come on, girl. All right, let's close with this scripture, and I'll pray, and then uh, you're going to close us out with a song, or are you going to pray? Yes, either one. We'll do a song. All right. So here's a good word to take home with you as you leave today. It's uh, from Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all the joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Father God, thank you for your word, for your promises. Thank you for making yourself real. 
to me and to anybody else that's willing to receive that today. I pray, God, that you would continue to be in our presence and that we would consciously seek contact with you all day, not just part of the day, but all day, every day. And I just thank you for all the work you've done in us, through us, and what you will do in us, as long as we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you guys.